artists are prophets and they stand at the pinnacle of culture and they stand at the very tip of culture and they are what drives everybody else forward. It's not the politicians, it's not the lawmakers or even the doctors or the engineers or the lawyers or any of those guys. It's the artists. It's the artists because they're the prophets. And what is sort of avant-garde today is tomorrow's mundane. It's that vision of what tomorrow looks like that is what drives that. It all begins by understanding the mind. I want to be happy now. I don't care about the future. I want to be happy right now. You are not alone. You are never, ever, ever alone in this. It's helped my voice grow and given me freedom to be creative on my own. I'm Christina Barcy. Welcome to Be Bold Begin, a podcast dedicated to you, the creative, the healer, and the innovator. The topics and conversations we have here are designed to help you discover what might be getting in your way and offer you tools, techniques, and guidance to move through them. I live in the imposter's body more than I live in my own body. I don't have to feel like I don't deserve this. This is where creativity and healing intersect. If you decide to be bold and begin, you have the opportunity to feel humbled and empowered. I totally believe that. I'm a certified Kaizen Muse creativity coach, a certified Reiki energy healer, and an entrepreneur, artist, and presenter. I will share with you my experiences, my proven tools and techniques that helped me and my clients and loved ones shift and expand in the areas they most desired. This is a gentle and open space where you will hear how others are being bold to encourage you to begin your own journey or expand the one you're on. This is Be Bold Begin. Hi, welcome back. This is Barcy, your host. And as many of you know, my first attempt at a professional creative life was as an actor. And after making some discoveries about how I was attaching being an actor to my whole identity, as in this is all I really knew about my artistic self and my adult self during that time, it became imperative to me at that point in my journey to begin to ask myself some questions and to give myself permission to explore and create new things. And with that came lots of discoveries and lots of healing. And of course, I eventually gained enough confidence to launch a business that would serve others in creating projects that challenged them to step out of their own comfort zones like I did. And I share this with you now because whether you are a creative or maybe a solopreneur or a solopreneur or a podcaster, we're talking to you today. My guest today helps artists turn their passion into a profession. And she also shared with me that she believes artists are natural entrepreneurs. Her name is Ellie Milan, and she's a visionary artist, author of the book, Unemployable, The Odyssey of an Artist an educator, inspirational speaker, and founding owner of Milan Art Institute and Art Social, an online art education program, social learning, and art patronage platform. Ellie is passionate about empowering artists and has transformed the lives of thousands of artists worldwide, helping them find their voice and turn their passion for art into a profession. She believes that your greatest gift to the world your superpower comes from identifying and overcoming your greatest pain, which we're going to dig into. So welcome, Ellie. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. I'm super excited to be here. We're really excited to have you. What you've created is so needed in the world. And I think creativity and art in general is such a wonderful way to sort of explore our superpowers, as you say. But I'd love to learn more about you before we dive into all of that. If you don't mind starting by sharing a little with us about your self-discovery and becoming an artist. Yeah. So I was not born with talent. I wasn't that kid in elementary school or high school that was ever recognized for art or being exceptional in that. In fact, history and English were my best subjects in school. And what happened when I was 15 years old, I started to think about college and I didn't want to be just like decent at a few things. I wanted to be like really good at one thing. 
And I didn't have that. I really wasn't really good at any one thing. And so I actually prayed about it. And I wanted, I don't know, a gift or something just to be really good at something. And probably about two weeks later in my art class, I was in just a generic high school art class, Betty Edwards, if you know who she is, she wrote Drawing from the Right Side of the Brain. She Mm. came in to our school on a big endowment. Somebody had given a bunch of money to our school and she taught from her book and something happened to me. My right brain got turned on. And I could suddenly almost overnight be able to draw. And it wasn't like I was amazing at drawing, but I was drawing stick figures and then suddenly I could draw. And I believed in my heart that that was like my gift and I was going to be an artist. And so then my dad's Greek and he's very macho and I don't know, traditional. And he, you know, loves art and it was his birthday coming up. And so I did this painting at school for him and it was a big 30 by 40 painting. And so this is how I got hooked on art, this story right here. It was his birthday and he's kind of like I said, just really like rough and macho and doesn't show a lot of emotion. And I was planning to give it to him and I heard him coming home and I heard his keys at the door and he's coming up the stairs and I was just so scared to give him this painting and what he would say because I knew what he would say would like make it or break it for me, you know, where I'd find out if I was any good or not. And I turned the painting around and showed it to him and his face just, his mouth just dropped and he actually started to cry and he just couldn't believe that I made this painting for him. And so he got kind of embarrassed and he ran up the stairs to his room and I ran into my room and I threw myself on the bed and just started bawling And I thought, man, if I can make my macho Greek dad cry, you know, I'm hooked for life. If I can make people feel. And I think I was just drawn to, I don't know, like maybe even empowerment in some way that like you can actually affect other people on such a deep level. And art has that power. I wanted that. I wanted to tap into that. So that's really how I got started. And I just wanted to affect people and... Yeah, that's kind of how I got going. Wow. Thank you for sharing that story. I have a macho dad too. So it's interesting (laughs) trying to affect our fathers with art. So I can relate to, it's very hard for me to ever, you know, break that. And every once in a while it comes through and it's interesting when it does. So I imagine that that must've felt so powerful and what a release to connect with your father in a way that was so connected to your expression. Yeah, totally. I can see how that's super powerful. Yeah. And I just think too, like I was 15. So I, if he had a different reaction, like he was like, Oh, why did you paint this stupid thing? Or, you know, I probably would have given up forever, you know? So I'm so grateful that somehow miraculously he was able to tap into some emotion, you know? Do you mind me asking if you've ever seen your dad express that way prior or... I only had seen him cry one other time in my life, and it was when he was watching Death of a Salesman, and I think he could identify with Willie Loman, and yeah, I have a brother, and their relationship's very similar in that movie, so I think I saw him cry in that movie, and I even asked my mom, like, what's wrong with dad? Like, he's crying. What is this? And that was the only other time. That is so interesting. Yes, I'm familiar with the play. And it was so prolific at the time when it was being written in the 50s, maybe even 40s. And it's just for those that haven't seen or read it, and I'm recalling, and this could be somewhat wrong, I believe it was about the American dream ultimately and like trying to, you know, just provide and do what you need to do to kind of like, you know, clock in, clock out for life. And one of the characters just basically abandons society's rules and goes off to live on a farm, I think. So I can see how a lot of particularly first generation, and I don't know if your dad was first generation, my parents are as well. And I could see how that would bring up a lot of emotion and a lot of thoughts and feelings. Mm-hmm. And it was also another moment of art. So that's kind of interesting. Do you feel like you were destined then to be an artist? I do. I totally do. You know, even before I was an artist, I excelled in English and I thought I would be a poet. And so I wrote poetry 
And I felt like that was going to be the route or the vehicle. But I just got into painting and I got lost in that right brain land of painting and really accessed that side of my creativity. It became addictive and just gave me so much passion and joy that how could it not be destiny? I think that the things that mm. give us the most fulfillment and joy, you know, really are. So yeah, I definitely think I was destined to be an artist. It's beautiful. So I'm going to fast forward a little bit and this connects to that question a little. I read that you had a vision about creating an art movement at one point before you created all of the wonderful things that you're doing now. Can you share a little bit about where that sits in your timeline and what that experience was and what that vision was originally? Yeah, I would say prior to that, I'd never really had one. So it came very unexpected. And I was just basically laying in bed. I wasn't even asleep. I was wide awake. And I was living in Savannah, Georgia. And I was in art school. And I was literally minding my own business. I wasn't like lighting candles and praying. It was just totally casual, <laughs> just basically laying there trying to fall asleep. And all of a sudden, I saw like a movie playing myself. Well, I didn't see myself, but I was in this and I was flying almost like a bird or something. I was flying around this land. I had like an aerial view of this land. And I knew that I had something to do with this land. Maybe I owned it or I was a part of it somehow. And it was like farmland or just acreage of rolling hills and lots of animals. I saw like clusters of animals and it was a community. And then I saw all these buildings and artists were gathering in these buildings. And I saw like critiques going on and I saw people helping other people. There was a foundry there. There was all kinds of kilns and like printing presses, like for printmaking, just tons of like art equipment and artists everywhere. And there was houses. And then this other building was completely dedicated to marketing. And it was filled with just computers and all these people that were dedicated to marketing. And I could tell, or I just knew that it was this, you know, marketing PR arm that was helping this movement or all these artists get their artwork spread all over the world. And it was just basically like this community, like a community of artists that all lived there and were working there and their artwork was affecting the world. And it felt like a movement. It felt like something big was happening and it was going to change the world. And I took it super literally. And I thought, I was kind of, you know, for a while anyway, in college, just kind of like, how is this going to happen? How am I going to, you know, be a part of this? And am I a big part of this? Am I leading this? Like, why did I see that? And then I think just through art school and the professors just kind of one after the other telling me, you know, nobody makes it in art, do art for art's sake. You know, there's no point. I don't know anybody who's successful in art. I don't know, just like so much garbage. And I think I just kind <laughs> of gave up on the idea or just thought, well, that was weird or I didn't really understand it. And then it was years later that I sort of picked it back up and it sort of resurfaced. Now I just feel like, I don't know if it is super literal. I am kind of moving towards buying about a thousand acres and, you know, working mm -hmm. on this. But on the other hand, I feel like it's also in the digital internet type realm and it's symbolic or kind of a metaphor. So I think we're on the brink of something big. And I think that it's not just me. I feel like this is happening in groups and communities all over the world. And I think that the next big art movement is an art movement. It sort of transcends the art world. Most of the art movements have been within the art world, you know, impressionism, fauvism, whatever. And I think of this movement is sort of like the age of reason type thing. And it's the art movement. It's a literally a movement in art that's going to hit every aspect of culture and society and, you know, everything that we do. And it's not just paintings, it's all art. And uh, there's this great book called A Whole New Mind. And he is basically writing about this. And I just listened to this book and I was like, oh man, that is exactly what I've been saying. And he's saying that in every aspect, like even if you're in 
healthcare. It's moving into the arts. It's moving into this very right brain, creative, relational aspect. That sort of more linear way of doing things is falling away. And I think that the proliferation of all the art all over the world is informing those other parts of society, even healthcare. It's like the fact that mm-hmm. everything's basically getting artsy is going to affect everything, <laughs> you know? Wow. Oh, there's so many wonderful things you shared. The last part I feel like gives this collective consciousness that is changing maybe even like more aggressively than normal because of all the things that just occurred in the world and that the whole world was a part of. I don't know if you feel like that folds into how and when things happen, but I feel like there's a shift too. I think a lot of us feel that. So that's really interesting. Totally. I want to circle back to that, but also your prophecy, your your vision was so detailed, which is so interesting. Like you had such a detailed experience with that visual that came to you. You know, you held on to a lot of those details too, because I think our brain does things when we try to recall, but you know, you're still creating stuff. So I think there's still so much opportunity to continue to like build what that all might look like for you. But it does feel like what you've created with your art institute is this thing, is this vision. The marketing part was so interesting that there was an actual marketing department in your vision. (laughs) That's so cool. (laughs) But it's such a key piece. Yeah. Isn't it? Especially when I'm like in college and it's like the last thing I'm thinking about, you know? Yeah. And I also relate to what you were sharing about all the garbage rhetoric around creativity, I'll call it, just being connected to that part of ourselves. And I think that even extends to how we view our desires and how we view joy and how we view as a collective, these emotions and these parts of ourselves. And those are more than emotions, but those very key parts to living a fulfilled life, we've made them very frivolous and unnecessary and not worth focus. And like you said, linear thinking, it's interesting how over the last maybe 150 years or more, we've really compartmentalized ourselves as human beings. And that's how maybe I would describe it, but we could talk about this a lot. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. And I think art is so connected to those parts of ourselves. It requires a lot of permission to allow our wholeness to communicate through a medium like creativity. But yeah, to come back to what you were saying about this movement, I'm curious now when you say maybe it's a movement of reason, can you share more about what you are thinking when you say reason? Oh, no, I mean, I think it's the opposite of that. (laughs) I think it kind of almost maybe. Oh, okay. Then I misheard. Yeah, yeah. I was saying like, you know, most art movements are artist art movements. You know, they're sort of within the art world and only people within the art world kind of get it. You know, same with like writing, you know, Mm -hmm. within the writing world, you have these movements that happened within writing, but they're sort of compartmentalized. But I feel like the, this art movement transcends the art world. It's beyond painting. It's beyond, it hits everything. And it's Mm -hmm. kind of like how the age of reason was, you know, I think that ended in 2012 personally, but I don't think we're any longer in that. So no, it would be the opposite of reason, you know. Okay. Wonderful. Thank you for clarifying that further. It's quite unreasonable. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. Um, (laughs) So, I mean, you have such a distinct year as well. And when you think that it ended, so why 2012? Oh man. Oh, now we're getting into the weird stuff. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is just my personal thing. I could be completely wrong. I fully, you know, admit that. So, or maybe this is just like a piece of it or who knows, who knows what this is. But, you know, there's so many cultures that say the world was going to end in 2012. And I think it did. Mm. I think it actually did. And I think they were right. And I think the age of reason died then. I think we finished an epoch in 2012 and it was a pretty significant year. A lot happened and a lot happened leading up to that. And I think that's when you see a mass exodus from religion and sort of a new, not to say this didn't exist before it did, but there was a mass exodus starting in 2012 out of religion, out of churches, out of establishment. And then it kind of spread into a lot of institutions. And I think it was us rejecting the age of reason 
And I have this whole thing about it with the Sistine Chapel and, you know, the famous painting where Adam is almost touching God's finger, but not quite. And he's sitting in a brain that's supposed to be a heart, but it's clearly a brain. And that painting to me prophesied the age of reason. And it ended in 2012 and it started way back then. So, and that's when man became the sum of all things, but man's no longer the sum of all things. What would you say it is now? I think that it's going back to sort of what ancient people believed and that God is the sum of all things. And I think things stopped being a line and they started being a circle again. And I think that Mm. that's why religion is sort of on the outs and has lost its place because Mm. that made man the sum of all things. I think we're in a definite spiritual age for sure. I think so too, because I feel a part of that. So I appreciate you sharing that. I know that can be a more vulnerable question, but you're in a safe space and everyone here hears things like this a lot. They're into it. Don't worry. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We talk about stuff like that. Yeah. And I think it's important to talk about though, because you have a great sense of being able to zoom out your perspective, how I'm experiencing it. I think one of your superpowers is being able to see things from afar in a whole way, in a big vision way. And it's lovely to hear people share that, like what that looks like for each person. And I think there's relatability in that. I feel like more of us have these experiences, but it doesn't feel like we can talk about them. So Mm -hmm. I appreciate you sharing it. And it kind of links to what you were sharing about your vision too, about your life and where you think things are moving. To me, that feels very congruent to what you just shared about where things may have shifted in your lifetime, in our lifetime. All that said, coming back to what you built with the Milan Art Institute, I'd love to know more about when that happened, how that happened. I read that your whole family helped build this together. You're all co-founders and that you have four children and everyone's an artist. That is so cool, first of all, and really special and makes me believe more that all of this is part of your destiny. So I would love to hear a little bit about how this all came to fruition. Okay, I'm going to try to make it brief because it's a little bit of a story. But in 2007, I would say, this kind of goes back to the vision. I met this man from Africa. He was from Burkina Faso. And he was, whoa, just like super intense and very, very spiritual. In fact, he had never seen a horse before. I don't know why, but he had never seen a horse before in real life. And so we took him to the neighbor's house to show him a horse and... As soon as he touched the horse, the horse's legs buckled and the horse got like woozy. And I was like, whoa. Whoa. (laughs) Yeah. And so we get talking to him. And it's so interesting that you felt like I had a strength of being able to kind of pan out and see things from a distance. Because he said to me, he said, I see you as a giraffe with a really long neck and you're able to see really far into the distance. And then he said, um, yeah, yeah, it was a life-changing moment for me. And he said, I see you in a big building. He said, it's almost like a factory. This is just his language. And artists from all over are coming to this building and you're encouraging them and you're helping them. And Mm. that's what fired up my vision that I had when I was 19. And it sort of brought it back sort of off the shelf. I dusted it off and I was like, wow, (laughs) like that was real because here's this, you know, point in my life. So that was about 2007. And so I went, I had some money saved. I went bonkers at that point. I was like, I'm going to go buy a piece of land and I'm going to get this thing going. So I started looking for land and all of that. Well, then 2008 happened. 2008. (laughs) 2008, good old 2008. And we just got wiped out. We had all our eggs in one basket with this one dealer and he basically had to stop buying from us because he bought so much from us for so many years and he had our stuff in so many different places. That was, you know, kind of dumb, just put all our eggs in that basket. So then we basically, our stream of income stopped and we had to kind of hustle and find other ways to sell art. Sorry to interrupt. When when you say we, is this you and your husband? Yeah. Sorry, me and my husband. Yeah. Because he's an artist too. Right. Okay. And so we were both full-time artists. Yeah. So there was no other source of income. 
but like I said, we had some money saved and, but we were also living at a higher level. Like we were broke at a higher level. And so our bills were quite large. And it's like, if we didn't make 8,000 bucks a month, we would lose things. You know, we just kept watching everything dwindle month after month after month. And that's when I started losing all sorts of things that I didn't realize were attached to my identity, like a good credit score, like my big house, like my fancy cars and like all these things that I had, Mm -hmm. I was losing one by one. And my reputation among my friends, I was the one that helped people. I wasn't the one that needed help. And Mm. so I also saw, wow, I have so much pride because it hurt so bad, all these things. And so I thought, I'm judgmental. I'm prideful. I have a lot of problems. And then the day came when I had to apply for a job somewhere. And there went my identity as an artist. And I realized... Mm. Being able to call myself an artist meant more to me than other things that are more important. And so I realized I had all these idols that just sort of elevated above what should be elevated. And it was a really painful two years of losing everything slowly. And I talk about this in my book, and I think I call the chapter Killing Me Softly because that's what it felt Mm -hmm. like. So here I am about to be homeless, facing my greatest fear I've ever had of, you know, everything my dad said would happen to me as an artist, to be destitute, living in the streets, I can't feed my children, and I'm a starving artist, right? And so we walked that out. And of course, that didn't happen, but I did face that fear. So once we were kind of more on our feet, we had moved to this property that my parents bought and we were renting from them because we weren't employed. So to get anybody to rent to you after you've lost everything, I mean, it's impossible. So especially back then, because there's so many people in this mess. So the only answer was to get bailed out by my parents. And of course, my dad, you know, rubbed my nose in that daily. So that Mm -hmm. was fun. So we're renting from them. And I'm looking out of my kitchen window. By the way, six of us lived me and my four children, we went from a 4,000 square foot house to a 1,200 square foot house. I always say it was the only five bedroom, 1,200 square foot house in the world. <laughs> so, <laughs> but anyway, so I was looking out my kitchen window and in my little tiny kitchen, I had this giant eight foot round table that came from our 4,000 square foot house because I couldn't afford to buy a reasonable table that would fit that space. So I had to like cram this giant table and I was looking out the window (laughs) and I'm seeing this, you know, 2,000 square foot multi-purpose metal building that would be a dream studio. But the only thing that was stopping me from being able to make that a studio would be about like $25,000 to finish it out. Didn't have a floor or walls or anything like that. And Mm -hmm. I was like, this feels like God's teasing me. Like I have this dream studio that's kind of within reach, but not really. And I'm living in this 1200 square foot house on my parents' property. Like this is just not adding up. And I told God that day, I was like, look, I don't know what's going on here, but clearly the things I'm praying for, like $25,000, like my life to straighten out, isn't working. You don't want to give me those things. So how about just for me to be reassured that you're actually real and you still exist, tell me what you're going to answer and I'll pray that, whatever that is. I just got to know that you are doing something. Mm. And I heard really like clear as anything, not audibly, but like in my heart, I just heard really clearly and it was outside of myself. This wasn't a desire I had. It was never a thought that I even had, but I heard God say, I'm ready to give you your art school now. And I was like, what? But I don't want an art school. Artists are hard and difficult to work with. I don't, I don't, know, <laughs> I don't know how to teach. I'm wow. completely not prepared for this. Like, uh, but then I thought, okay, a deal's a deal. <laughs> so I was like, okay, would you please give me my art school? But with it, I need the desire to have one. And I got to know what I'm doing. I don't know anything. So... I am not kidding you. Two weeks later, so I had this other sort of freak opportunity that came that I was invited to go to Ukraine to teach like volunteer basis. And I didn't ever teach art before in my life. So 
I got offered this opportunity to go volunteer and teach in Ukraine. So I went. And when my mom picked me up from the airport after that trip where I volunteer teaching for the first time in my life, she says, oh, you are not going to believe this. You know, you've been wanting that studio on the property. And I was like, yeah, because I didn't tell anybody about the school except my husband. And she said, well, $26,000 fell out of the sky for you. And I was like, what? And it was just this. So specific. Yeah, like super specific. I had been asking for 25000 but $26,000 came out of the sky. And she said it was like this kind of like weird inheritance thing. It was just kind of this convoluted sort of string of events that happened. And I had $26,000. And I was just like, oh my gosh, I know exactly what to do with that. So we built it out and it literally came to the penny, $26,000. And then I still was kind of like, you know, this is bad to say, but I was sort of like, that's going to be a really nice studio for me. And I was like, "Eh, (laughs) I'll get to the art school one day. But then I got this call. It's like, I wasn't let go of that because then I got this call about a month later as it was being finished. And somebody said, Hey, have you ever taught art classes? Do you teach art classes? And I was like, no, but it's funny you ask that because I'm kind of supposed to open this art school. And she said, Oh, I have these 16 ladies and we're looking for somebody to teach us art lessons. And that's kind of how I got started with that. And it took about, I would say, three years where I learned how to do it, how to teach, how to navigate the sort of irrational, emotional stuff that happens when you're creating on what I call these little old ladies from Sun City (laughs) that would come to my school and They wanted me to help them loosen up from their watercolor classes and teach them mixed media. It was literally three years of lessons of helping people transition out of left brain control into right brain expression and the meltdowns they would have and how to navigate that and reassure them and walk that out. And that was really my foundation of learning how to teach art in an effective way. So... That's how the art school came about. It was pretty miraculous. And I can't say I was really willing and it wasn't my idea. Wow. But now, of course, I'm all in and passionate about it. And that came pretty quickly. Did it. So, okay. First, I relate so much to the way this came to fruition for you. I have a lot of moments like that in my life, especially lately. So it's nice to hear someone else's story in the way that it came through for you. It's very cool. (laughs) And I find it interesting that you were like kind of fighting it a little bit. Like I do that too, where I resist at first. So I relate to that too. And I think a lot of people do Mm -hmm. because it's a lot. What that is starting a school, that's a big deal. So to fast forward to becoming passionate, so you said that came very quickly. So how did that start? Was it working with these women? Was it finding a superpower in yourself you didn't know was there that was lying dormant? Or how did that start to plug in for you? Yeah, I would say within like three days of sort of praying that and saying, okay, God, well, you have to give me the desire to do this. It was about three days, but I started to connect the vision I had when I was 19 And I started to see that, you know, the African man told me that and how I went jumping into it on my own. And then that died, right, with the 2008 thing. I started to piece all this together. And then I started to realize, because something that puzzled me all these years about that vision is how do you get, you know, all these people to kind of be of one spirit or lighthearted, you know, sort of culturally or... I don't know, like, not that everybody has to think the same, that's boring, but like, like lack of a better word, like the same wavelength, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same wavelength. Same frequency. Yeah. Yeah, Same frequency. There you go. And sort of some kind of common purpose of some sort. And I couldn't figure that out. Like, where do these people come from? And how do we all know each (laughs) other? And so that's when the school thing hit me. And I was like, that's how it's a school or it's, graduates of the school or it's having something to do with the school or what the school is doing. That makes sense to me. And so I really started to piece all this together and it felt like destiny. It felt very big and purposeful. And I think that's what got me passionate at first. And then because my first year, I had some quick wins, but then 
those fell apart quickly and it wasn't that successful the first year. In fact, at the end of the first year, I had five students total. And so I told my friend, I said, yeah, I'm quitting the art school. I'm not doing that anymore. I got this beautiful building and I'm just going to go back to just being an artist. That was much better for me. And she's like, what? You can't do that. Remember how you're saying this is destiny and your vision. And I was like, I don't know. I think I made that up. And (laughs) she just kind of reminded me of it all. And she's like, all right, well, don't give up yet. She goes, okay, what does your website look like? And I was like, I don't have a website. She's like, you don't have a website. You can't have an art school without a website. What kind of art school doesn't have a website? I was like, oh, yeah, I guess you got a point. And then she just was like, okay, well, how are you doing this? How are you doing that? And I just realized I was doing everything really dumb. And maybe it was even me not fully trying because I was kind of scared and it's easier yeah. to just fail or something. So yeah. We know what failure feels like. Yeah. Like we, I think as humans, like it's sometimes easier than succeeding. Totally. Especially if you get to help out in it and you're like partly, (laughs) you know, like I kind of did that on purpose. You know, I didn't try real hard. I didn't try enough. Yeah. So anyway, I just kind of like got revived in the vision and repassioned for it. And I implemented everything she was saying. I made a website, did all the stuff and by the following year, I had 300 students. So Wow. Big difference. Big difference. And then it's been growing since. So yeah, I guess it was a process. I can't say that like right from the beginning, I was all passionate and, you know, it came and went. Yeah. I think it's important to tell those parts of the story. So again, I am grateful that you're willing to do that because I think that it's very easy in the online world we live in now to see something that's so finished and so tight and like put together and your presence online is very attractive and visually attractive and put together and which is great. You want to be there. But for those listening that are like relating to you right now and going, well, I could never do it because fill in the blank. Right. And then like hearing that it takes time, hearing that you had to fail forward a few times and convince yourself and all of that is so important and it's not uncommon. It's very normal in a bigger process, like building, it's truly building things, building a business. Totally. It does take time. Yeah. So thank you for including that and telling your journey. So I do want to talk about how you work with artists now because I believe in superpowers. I think everyone has something so beautiful to offer the world too. And whether you're an artist or not, everyone's creative and everyone has purpose. And I truly believe that. And I see that through how you speak about the way you like encourage the art process for your students. And I'd love to know more about that in general, but also what caught my eye is how you transform pain. Speaking of pain, (laughs) painful things, transforming pain into superpower. And why is it so important for those things to be linked? Yeah. One thing that we teach in our one-year online programs called the mastery program is there's this voice section that's kind of in the middle of it where we teach artists how to find their voice because that's really important, you know, for artists to know who they are, what their message is, and how do they deliver that message in their style, their voice, all that. So as a big Mm -hmm. piece of that, we want our artists to know what their purpose is. And I really believe that art is just a vehicle because a lot of people say, oh, my purpose is being an artist. And I don't think that's your purpose. I think that's just your vehicle. I don't think it's your purpose to be a doctor. That's your vehicle. Mm -hmm. So our purpose, I think, is a little bit more, I don't know, abstract, I guess, or more emotional or more spiritual. I don't know, something in there. Yeah. From the core. I think there's a yeah, core from the core. That's part right. of ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And then the things we do are the action steps, right? Yeah. So to identify that, especially because most of our students are women. Oh. I'm not sure why. Maybe it's because two women do most of the teaching, but yeah, most of our students are women and we get it, especially in the older women that are my age or older, they've given themselves for so long and they've sort of help their husbands or they've, you know, been there for their children. And it's been a long time since they thought about themselves. It's been a long time since they made themselves a priority in any way. And certainly not their creativity, which they've been told is frivolous. It's a frivolous, you know, piece of their life. It's a luxury. It's not a priority. So to get them to start thinking about themselves again, 
And there's a lot of resistance to it. You'd be surprised. And this nervousness or this, I don't know how, or I'm scared to look. So we kind of have a process to get there. It's not out of the blue. There's a long runway towards this, but basically they get to this place where they have to kind of go Mm -hmm. back in time. Usually it's before the age of five is your first, let's say, assault, your first trauma, your first pain Mm -hmm. for almost everyone. And then it just resurfaces and rehits all throughout your life. And you'll find it again in high school. You'll find it when you're seven. You'll find it when you're 10. You'll see it again, maybe in an early relationship or a marriage. It just keeps keeps coming. And it always has the same message. And it's a lie. That message is a lie. And so for me, my earliest memories are just this pain that I would just categorize as having no value not having worth and just feeling worthless and not valued. And so, for example, I have an older brother and my dad, I already said, is Greek. And, you know, my brother would, we'd wrestle and we'd fight and whatever, like siblings do. But right in front of my dad, he would pin me down to the floor and put his knees on my shoulder so I couldn't move. And he would, you know, spit loogies in my face and then suck them back up. Or he would pound my chest until I would cry or he'd tickle me until I cried. I mean, basically Mm. I felt like it was torture and it it was definitely that he was more powerful than me. He was stronger than me. I couldn't move. There was nothing I could do about it. And I was clearly not enjoying it. And my dad would just laugh with him like this boys would be boys type thing. And I know in his heart, he didn't understand My dad and I have a good relationship now, and I've spent my 20s forgiving him. And then again, in the 30s, another round of forgiveness. And I probably have another round to go, but I think he just didn't know any better. But the message I got is you are not worth protecting. You have Mm -hmm. no value because he could easily tell my brother, hey, get off her, you know. And so this is something I just see reoccurring in my life. And even though I feel like I've overcome this to some degree, and I don't feel like this feeling of not having value or worth holds me back too much, and I'm able to move past it, even still, there's remnants of it, and I still deal with it. You know, I think how you know is what triggers you, mm-hmm. usually with a spouse or a boyfriend or girlfriend or somebody that you're very close with will trigger you. And when you get triggered, that's a clue as to what your pain is. And you're going to trace it all the way back to when you're five years old. And so now if somebody were rude to me or said something really demeaning to me, or maybe I need defending or something, and my husband's like, she's tough. She can take care of herself. She likes to mouth off. She'll say something. And so he won't say anything. But I get it. Like, he doesn't want to defend me. I'm not worth anything Mm -hmm. to him to stick up for me. And then I get triggered and I get angry at my husband. He's not the one that said the things, Mm -hmm. it's somebody else. So that's a clue as to what your pain is. And then I realized that looking back and just to help artists, what I realized in myself is that what I am doing now or what I find, I'm in my own skin. This feels really good to me. It almost feels like something outside of me is empowering me in this is making people know that they have value, they have purpose, their life is significant, they have greatness in them, and, you know, they're going to really do something with their life. And that's really the heartbeat of our school is Mm -hmm. that. And so I feel like that's my superpower is making people feel like they have value. And I don't think this Mm -hmm. is unique to me. I feel like this is most people. I don't know if I can say it's everyone. Maybe it is. But because it's like a part of us, I feel like maybe existed before ourselves, this is kind of out there, you know, but we were hidden, you know, hidden in God somewhere. And so when we were born, we were like marked, you know, with our destiny. And there was this scroll or our destiny was already written in a way. And I feel like that darkness sees what that is and starts to beat it down and starts to diminish it and starts to pick at it and to take away our power, to take away what we are going to do, to keep us in this like limited shrunk up way. Mm. And that's what that pain's about because I could have gotten a bunch of messages from my experiences. I could have gotten you're unloved or you're unacceptable or you are rejected 
so many messages I could have got, but that's not the message I got. It's you have no value. That was the lie I heard. And I think Mm -hmm. the pain is there because of our superpower. I don't think we get the superpower because of our pain, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I love how we all have versions of how we feel like these things exist or like why they exist for us. I feel like I relate to a lot of the story. I say story, but the way that you shared how we might come to this life to experience our purpose, I would add that if I were telling my version of it, I feel like the darkness and the things that the dark and the light, like you said, they're all there. Everything's there for us to participate in. And I think maybe sometimes the pain is there to give us that friction to allow us as a tool, which doesn't mean, you know, I advocating for trauma, yeah, you know, things like that. But that said, it's, I think all things exist at once. It's the circle. So yeah, it's, it's fun to talk about and how we all connect to this part of ourselves. So it sounds like I have a similar story with how I connected with a child trauma that became what I do in life and what I believe in and what I believe my purpose is too. So yes, it's an access point to when we need to work within a system, like you want them to excel in a particular thing. So it's Mm -hmm. nice to have something that works that we can connect to right away. So it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, that there's a process for connecting with that part of our lives and then discovering how that links up to what we care about as adults and how we express ourselves and what we deeply care about on a core level. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, one thing that we really share with our artists about is that their superpower is their purpose. So that's the purpose of their art. Their art is almost like an experiential portal I've experienced with my husband, he has a whole different set of pain, but he was painting these trees. And whenever people would buy these trees, they would tell us these stories that people would come over to their house and stand in front of the trees and just cry and just weep. And it wasn't everybody, but we heard this more than once. We heard this so many times. And it was like, what is with these trees? And once we connected his superpower and the tree and what was sort of held in that tree, then it really made sense. And I think it's people who were dealing with shame and feeling like they're bad and dealing with that, the tree brought healing. It was this portal or this sort of thing to look at that had, I don't know, just so much in it because we tell our artists all the time that you know, encrypted in every brushstroke is this pain and overcoming. It's there and it's in somehow in the art. And so people that have a common experience feel it and they tap into it. And so that's what I believe about these trees is the people that cried had some sort of similar experience as my husband and were dealing with that shame and it touched something in them. And it wasn't like a bad feeling, like they looked at these trees and cried and were sad. It was like they were moved. They were being seen and heard somehow through the painting. Yeah. Art is just, it's amazing. And it's in all the arts. I mean, when we watch movies, when we listen to music, sometimes you can't explain it. I mean, I hear music from uh, this one particular part of Greece. I still don't know why. i got to figure this out. Mm. But there's this one particular kind of music that if I hear it, especially the drums, And it makes me cry every time. And it's this passion cry. It's not crying from sadness. It's like, I feel like I can conquer the world. I feel like I can do something. And I just get so emotional. And I just cry every time I hear these drums. It's almost like I can't handle it. It's so intense. And there's something to that. There's something in that music that's resonating in me. And I think that's the beauty of art is it bypasses language or anything. And it just goes right to our gut and it just grips our heart. And that's Mm -hmm. what got me hooked to start with, you know, is that dorky painting I did when I was 15, (laughs) it gripped my dad's heart and something happened. And that's why I love being an artist. And that's why I love helping artists tap into that. Cause I don't feel like you can illustrate it and be so like manhandling it and make it all happen. I think, though, as you are aware of it and as you are sort of co-laboring with it a bit, as long as you don't 
own it too much. You have to kind of be a conduit. So that's another thing we talk Mm -hmm. about, but yeah. And there's a fine line there. You know, you want to partner and co-labor and kind of be in it and not oblivious, but not so much that you aren't allowing that sort of supernatural thing to happen. And I don't know that there's a lot of people that teach that type of stuff. You know, I think that's the the age we're coming into where that's going to be common. That's going to be really common in school or educational things, you know, to learn how to do that. I think that's what you're doing with this podcast and exposing people to things like that and how to really move into it and lean into it. Yeah. I would love to see this happen in a more structural facility, if you will, like in the things that everyone has to interact with, like public school and spaces that are common. Yeah. And I appreciate you sharing that and saying that. Thank you. And it's interesting. I sometimes have rose colored glasses on because I work in this space, meaning I, I spend time in this space where I talk to people like you are doing things like this. And it feels so normal to me yeah. that I a hundred percent believe the world is already this way <laughs> and that everyone does this, <laughs> you know, and it's funny how I'm a little taken aback sometimes when I'm met with someone who doesn't have this experience. And I'm like, Oh, that's right. Like it's not everyone is like walking the path this way or maybe not yet. That would be beautiful. We had more tapping in like that. So yes, podcasts, I think is a great way. So many more people have access to conversations like this. Totally. It's part of the reason why I fell in love with this medium. It's so accessible. I know we're running a little over, but I would love to hear you share just a little about why you believe artists are amazing entrepreneurs, because Like you said, I'm saying it for the third time now, society has this rhetoric that we're flighty and shitty at things and can't get it together and we'll never make money. And there's so much shame and guilt sometimes for a lot of us as artists and worth. And there's so many things that come up when we need to exchange money now for what we believe defines us, right? Which is our art. We talked about that already, but I know that that's what a lot of us carry. So I would like to hear your perspective on that and how you believe the opposite, which is great. Yeah. I know you believe this too, but words have power and they can be life-giving or they can be really destructive. And I feel like artists have been living. I do think it's over though. I think 2020 is when it ended, but I think that for centuries, artists have been living under this curse made by words of the starving artist. I think Van Gogh sort of romanticized and glorified it and the story, how they speak of him has Mm -hmm. really romanticized this idea of this sort of deranged, unstable, he cut off his ear, he had all these problems, he, you know, might've shot himself, you know, all this folklore about Mm -hmm. the, you know, messed up, unstable, poor, not just poor, starving, you know, Mm -hmm. that it's like primal. There's almost like nothing worse than starving. You know, you're not just poor, you are starving. And that really like hits our subconscious mind, our, our primal brain. That's all about surviving and eating, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's like, we've lived under this like great fear. Don't be an artist. You're going to starve. And it's terrible. And so the very opposite is actually true. And oh, gosh, I just got this. This is so cool. After this, I got to write this down. You know, what we were just saying about the superpower of a person is their greatest pain. Maybe that even yeah. transcends to like a people group or a culture or a city. Like that's probably, you know, on a spiritual mapping level. So for the artist, the greatest pain has been this declaration of you're going to starve but it speaks to their superpower because as soon as you overcome that idea, mm. we're the breadbasket of the world. Man, it's like artists are actually designed and created to be the most affluent people of the world, you know, the kings and queens of the earth that will prosper all, you know, really, if you think about it. Ooh. I got so many chills through yeah, that. Yeah, I did too. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It feels right. Yeah. And one reason for that of why I think that is all artists listening know this. We're futurists in a lot of ways. We think a lot about the future 
we're very visionary. We're very visual and we feel a lot. And there's a lot of like pioneering that goes into that. And you're so wholeheartedly sold out to your vision in every way that any penny you get, you're going to fund that vision. You're going to fund the future. You're going to invest in that and give into that. So that's the best people to give money to, honestly. And I don't know if you read Kandinsky, but Wassily Kandinsky, he wrote all these books and he wrote this book called On the Spiritual and Art. And he says that Mm -hmm. artists are prophets and they stand at the pinnacle of culture and they stand at the very tip of culture and they are what drives everybody else forward. It's not the politicians, it's not the lawmakers or even the doctors or the engineers or the lawyers or any of those guys. It's the artists. It's the artists because they're the prophets. And what is sort of avant-garde today is tomorrow's mundane. It's that vision of what tomorrow looks like that is what drives that. And not only visualizing it and putting it in some sort of manifestation, whether it's a song or a piece of writing or a painting or a movie or whatever, but funding it as well. I don't think artists need to grovel for patronage. And what we need to do is stand in our place and hold our head high and know what it is we're offering the world and everything else will come. It's knowing your identity as an artist, knowing who you are in that role. And Hollywood's out, I think, and influencers are in, you know, and artists taking on a whole new form. And it's the establishment that's held up sort of, an agenda type artist, Mm. those structures are crumbling, you know, whether it's the gallery system or Hollywood or whatever, doesn't mean films aren't going to be big, but not without that superstructure of control and gatekeeping that's been going on. And that's what we see falling apart. And so there's this great transfer of wealth to the individual artist and it's us that's going to fund the future. And I don't know. I could talk probably, I don't know, for a long time on that subject, but I feel very passionate about it. And you said something about, I don't know if you named it 2020, but you basically said, you know, we all know something a little weird's going on and things have shifted. And I think if we look back, we're going to say that 2020 was the year of the artist, was the year it shifted for art because that really was almost like the nail in the coffin for the establishment art world. And, Mm. you know, it's like so much fell apart with that control superstructure and it gave an opportunity for other things and other platforms to really flourish. I think we're going to see artists really come into their own and that is converging with this art movement that's happening. So that convergence of artists really knowing and that curse being over that combined with this art movement is going to be just huge, huge. Mm, That feels really good. Just hearing you talk about it in this way. And it feels accurate to me. I feel like that's what I've been predicting too. actually, right as they announced COVID in the U S I remember thinking, Oh, this is what's going to happen. Like everything you just shared about it is what I was feeling is about to go down. And I was actually on a break for this podcast and I started it back up so that we would have a space to start talking about these things and sharing and shepherding people to themselves to express what they have let maybe be dormant or that they were also feeling needed to come out to be a part of it. So yeah, that's, this is like a wonderful place. I will ask if there was one takeaway you would like the listener to have, what would that be from today's conversation? Oh, Well, you know that if you're listening, you have tremendous power and purpose and whatever's inside of you, that art that's inside of you, that creative thing that's inside of you, the world needs to see it, needs to hear it. And I think this is your time to step into your destiny and really express it and walk it out and take those risks and take that leap of faith and jump in, start before you're ready and just see what value you're going to bring to this world and what service and fulfillment you're going to experience from it. Once you step into your destiny, it's like all things that pertain to your destiny are there. 
And so if there's fears of what do I do about money? What do I do about this? What do I do about that? Don't worry. If it's your destiny, it's there and it's already financed. And so Mm. I would just hope people feel inspired to really go for it. And if they're already going for it, to just keep running and be invigorated and just re-inspired to really push and spend time in your craft, spend time, you know, painting and singing, writing, acting, whatever it is you're doing, like really put effort and passion and heart into it and time, make it as good as you possibly can. And yeah. (laughs) Amazing. Thank you for that message. How can we connect with you? Okay. So I have a website that's my personal art, Ellie Milan, and it's E-L-L-I-M-I-L-A-N. And then Art Social is the platform that we built for artists and art lovers. So that's a great way to connect. I have a blog Mm -hmm. on my website. It's Artist Odyssey is the name of it. And social media, of course, just, you know, under my name. So I'm on Instagram, Facebook, et cetera. TikTok even. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. (laughs) That's great. Thank you for that. And we'll put all of the links in the show notes too, but it helps you sometimes hear it. So I appreciate you sharing that. And thank you so much for this conversation. It was so much fun. And hearing your story was really, I think, relatable for a lot of us. And for those of you who are having visions like Ellie's and I think, you know, maybe listen to that and see what happens. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you. Truly, thank you. Thank you for listening to Beeble Begin. We hope that these episodes inspire and empower you to take your next steps in your own intuitive journey towards a life or business that feels clear, authentic, and aligned. And if you're ready for more tools and guidance like courses and free events, then I'd love to invite you to my new Intuitive Creators Academy and Collective. It's free to join. Just follow the link in the show notes and remember to DM me once you get there to receive a special gift for being a listener of People Begin. I'll look forward to seeing you there.